one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 1512. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Nice to have you back in the Attila the Hun seat, Sawyer. Welcome welcome back, my friend. It is good to be back, although I don't think Attila the Hun got to talk about uh, the FAA and space stuff. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, also joining us tonight is Mark Ratterman. How's it going, Mark? Hey, everybody. Good to be here. And once again, also joining us is Larry Heron. How's it going, Larry? Larry's doing pretty well and uh, happy to be here as well, Sawyer, and happy to have you back. Thank you. It is uh, good to be back, and we also hope to have Dr. Kat Robinson back very soon as well. Here, here. All right, so let's get right into it with some of our... Uh, Shorter news items, but still very important in our news roundup here. Uh, and the first involves the return of the crew six astronauts back to Earth after their six-month stay aboard the ISS. Returning September 4th with the official splashdown time of 12.17 a.m. Eastern, just off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida, after 2,976 orbits of the Earth and 78,875,292 miles around the planet. All of that to end with a spectacular view for those of us here in Florida. Right, Mark? You betcha. And I just want to say thank you to NASA and the crew and SpaceX for conveniently having a nighttime reentry that amounts to my first ever view of a plasma trail on a uh, capsule. I was uh, surprised when I took a look on social media Sunday later in the day and saw when it was, where it was, and where I was in relation to where it would be flying. And doggone, I saw my first ever plasma trail off of the Dragon capsule coming in. Uh, had trees obscuring a bit of the view, but one of the things that's you know kind of stands out is how colorful it was. How how <laughs> you know when you know there's people involved, it it just makes it dramatic in a special way. And I guess the comment is people that are listening to us have probably seen pictures that, that other folks captured of the reentry. And the one thing I got to say is that it's, it's so typical that as good as a picture can be, it doesn't do justice to really what you see with your own eyes. So, um, you know, the colors, I'm not even sure how I would describe the colors. I wanted to say coral, but I'm not exactly sure what coral looks like but it it's it wasn't an orange it wasn't a pink it wasn't 
yellow, but it was a lot of a lot of shades that uh, really impressive. And when you think about the speed and the energy involved, and you know, those are people that are that are along for the ride. Cool. Yeah, I think uh, I also Crucix's return was my first time ever seeing a return of a space vehicle as well. Um, I only got to see it for about eight seconds or so because of clouds, but for the portion that I did see, it's, yeah, you're right. It's kind of yellow and then it turns to a dark orange. Then it looks kind of pinkish coralish and you get those little flecks flying off every now and then, which is designed that way. It's, uh, the heat shield tiling on the sides and the ablative material underneath supposed to do that so that's okay but it's yeah uh, it's nothing like you see in the pictures and yet everything like you see in the pictures for no other way to describe that yeah i definitely will pay attention to uh you know a crew return in the future or a cart yeah i suppose the same thing would apply to a, a cargo dragon coming back um i'm just gonna pay closer attention to it because i'd like to see it again i mean launches are good don't get me wrong but that was that was right up there. Yeah, it should. We do have other CRS missions coming up. Uh, we've got Crew 7 that's up there now. So obviously their return in about six months. Uh, and like you mentioned, it really brings a whole new meaning to it when you realize that there are people on board. So I should also welcome back to Earth Steve Bowen, Woody Hoberg, uh, UAE astronaut Sultan Al-Nayadi, and Russian cosmonaut... Andrei Fedyaev. So uh, welcome back to Crew 6. That wasn't the only uh, re-entry. There was a, another satellite re-entry of which there was some unique tracking for. Right, Larry? That's right, Sawyer. So this is a story about Leo Labs and their assistance that they provided during ESA's successful re-entry of Aeolus, an Earth observation satellite. And we've discussed uh, Aeolus on Talking Space recently. And the satellite's developers didn't design Aeolus for a controlled re-entry, but with a series of maneuvers, ESA managed to lower the satellite's orbit from 320 kilometers to 120 kilometers to position it over a planned Atlantic ground track. And that was to prevent any remaining debris from causing harm. And Leo Labs supported the mission as a tracking partner using its global radar network, which it uses to track uh, space debris to help ESA verify and monitor all those orbital changes as they, as ESA made them. And why is this important? Because by testing space tracking capabilities uh, for assisted and controlled re-entries, we're one step closer to achieving sustainable space and preventing any disasters from happening with the space debris. We didn't nickname ourselves the Space Junk Podcast for nothing. That's right. <laughs> all those years ago <laughs> indeed indeed it's, i mean we we were talking about that topic good lord before it was even you know fashionable to do it so and we're going to stick with uh with space debris it is indeed a, a a topic that's well worth uh keeping tabs on and you know we'll we'll just we'll just keep unplugging with it yeah because a reminder there's a a lot of satellites were not designed to burn up only recently was it a requirement that there has to be a way for your spacecraft to be disposed after its normal lifetime. And uh, basically your two options currently are you throw it into a graveyard orbit or you burn it up. So this was uh, pretty impressive. 
That's for sure. Let's continue along here to our next topic. And uh, this one uh, I was excited for maybe just a little bit too much because I was physically there for it. Uh, But that was the recent launch of the National Reconnaissance Office Flight 107 and uh, the Silent Barker mission. Gene? Yeah, so that first off, that logo was was probably one of the coolest logos that I've seen that ULA had out there, and the uh, National Reconnaissance Office. It's basically a, a fox you know, leaping into uh, into the woods. So, if if you've ever if you get a chance to, to look it up, please do by all means. Anyway, the United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket carrying the Silent Barker NROL one hundred seven mission for the National Reconnaissance Office and the United States Space Force Space Systems Command lifted off on September tenth at eight forty seven a.m. Eastern Daylight Time from Space Launch Complex forty one at Cap- Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. And according to the press release, uh, United Launch Alliance has launched 157 times with 100% mission success. Uh, Silent Barker uh, was ULA's 98th launch for the national security for national security, and it was the final NRO launch aboard an Atlas V rocket as United Launch Alliance transitions to future missions. Uh, to the next generation rocket, uh, which will be Vulcan, uh, which will offer far more, more flexibility in a single system with uh, streamlined operations and, of course, greater affordability. Uh, the United Launch Alliance's next launch is for Amazon's Project Kuiper. It's a proto flight mission from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. So in, indeed, that was the uh, the launch. You're not going to really know a lot about the payload and what it was and so on and so forth like, like you usually do, since this is, again, a National Reconnaissance Office mission. So indeed, it's a, it's a secretive flight. So you're not really going to get all of the goodies as far as the specifics and what the payload is doing and what it's supposed to be doing. In fact, the, uh, if by, uh, uh, at, 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 <clears throat> excuse me, the usual uh, launch, you, know, you go ahead and follow it up right through payload separation. Not this one. The launch term, the launch coverage terminated right at pay, payload fairing separation. So, again, a little bit of a secretive launch. But congrats to ULA. Congrats to the NRO for putting together a, a successful mission. And again, I was waiting for that tweet from Tori Bruno whenever he he goes ahead and and. Uh, uh, has a successful flight. He just puts down the down the number, and in this case, it was good old one five seven. Exactly. The only thing that we do know about this mission that we wouldn't have to kill you to tell you about uh, is that it was for the Space Domain Awareness Project, so SDA, um, and that it is to basically help with surveillance from space to augment and overcome existing ground sensor limitations with timely 24-hour above-the-weather collection of satellite metric data, only possible with a space-based sensor, and then communicates its findings to satellite operations, analysts, and other mission users. That is per ULA, and uh, that's about as much as you're going to get out of them. But it was an absolutely beautiful launch. The morning was almost perfectly clear, a couple clouds behind the launch pad, and then just soars into the sky. Uh, Another fun fact, this was the first day launch from Cape Canaveral in three months. 
the last time that we had seen a day launch was the Euclid satellite mission, uh, uh, which, or excuse me, the Euclid telescope, which was back on, I believe, July 1st. So it's uh, been a little while. So honestly, it was nice to not be half dead at midnight or 3 a.m. to see this one. Uh, gorgeous in person. And then the Atlas, you get the solid rocket motors, which leave a beautiful trail behind them, uh, along with those RD-180 uh, engines. They're just really nice. Indeed. And and I believe this configuration for the Atlas V was known as the Bruiser, according to uh, uh, according to uh, uh, Tori Bruno. Um, I'm trying to remember what the config was offhand, Sawyer. 551. Thank you. Wasn't this the same one that uh, launched uh, New Horizons, I think? Possibly. Yeah. Uh, I think the Mars rovers may have been a 541. For those who are unaware... The 5 means the fairing size, which is 5.4 meters. Uh, the second number is the number of solid rocket motors. So for this mission, it was a 551. So that was five solid rocket motors. And then one upper stage Centaur engine being the last number there, which there are very few of the 551 configurations left. In fact, if I recall correctly, I believe there's only about 17 Atlas V missions left and a majority of them are set aside for either Starliner flights or, as you mentioned, uh, Amazon's Project Kuiper. So we see that uh, ULA getting ready now as they finish up the Atlas V to jump ahead, as you mentioned, to uh, the next generation Vulcan rocket. And uh, while ULA's rockets are moving ahead, got to say, a lot of the buildings and things that are uh, around the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, and especially NASA, starting to have seen better days, right, Larry? Uh, yeah, that's that's the word lately, Sawyer. Uh, NASA's infrastructure is in trouble, and the deterioration is fast becoming a serious problem. Uh, Eric Weiser, director of NASA's Facilities and Real Estate Division, uh, says that the agency's budget for maintenance and construction is wholly underfunded. In his presentation to the National Academies Committee, he described NASA's infrastructure as in an increasing state of decline. 83% of NASA's facilities are beyond their design life. The majority of NASA's facilities across the country are rated marginal to poor in condition, Weiser said. So what does this mean? So there's a, a mismatch between what NASA needs to maintain its facilities and the dollars that they have. That maintenance gap is $259 million a year using NASA's most conservative estimate, or more than $600 million a year if NASA followed the maintenance practices of the commercial industry. And that trend is not good, said Weiser. NASA is seeking to reduce its maintenance burden in a few important ways. One is by demolishing structures that are no longer needed for future missions. And the agency, believe it or not, has identified more than 700 facilities that can be torn down, which will reduce NASA's maintenance requirements by several tens of millions of dollars, according to Weiser. NASA is also turning over surplus facilities to commercial companies and to other users. And so what is the impact? According to Kathy Elliott, NASA's acting chief human capital officer, about 60% of the agency's employees work in aging facilities rated as fair or worse. 
and that will affect employee experience and work efficiency and morale, and Elliott considers it a significant risk for NASA's workforce. If I want to inspire the next generation of our workforce, we need better facilities, said Weiser. So what's next? So a National Academies panel is chartered to examine the critical facilities, workforce, and technology needed to achieve NASA's long-term strategic goals. And NASA's leadership, lawmakers, and White House budget officials are expected to review the report. And I think, Gene, you had something you wanted to add to that? I think, Mark, I'll let Mark go first. But uh, yeah, I do have I do have some significant stuff to add to that. Okay. I'll make a quick comment here. Uh, you know, 10 and 11 years ago, I was in the VAB several times for shuttle rollouts to the pad. And one of the things that surprised me being on multiple levels and being able to see, you know, the, uh, the inside of the VAB from other than the floor level is that uh, it, 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 I can't say that it, that it looked old, but it reminded me of uh, FAA uh, air traffic control towers that I've been around that have been in place for 30 and 40 years. And, uh, you know, you see a, a patina of dust on cables and things. And, uh, you know, that's just the surface, but that's an indication that they've been there a long time. And uh, dare I say, Arecibo? Oh, I don't even want to go there. That was a tragedy. <laughs> To follow up with uh, what you were saying, Larry, I have actually been following the uh, the, the 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 well, um, for lack of a better phrase, the Augustine Commission, uh, because uh, Mr. Norm Augustine is the committee chair on the uh, committee on NASA Mission Critical Workforce Infrastructure and Technology that the uh, National Academies of uh, Science, Engineering, and Medicine is uh, chairing and they have been, they, their charge is to go ahead and tour every NASA facility. They just held uh, day two of meeting 10 today. This was the last day of this particular meeting. And they did talk with uh, uh, several individuals uh, during this, during the two day meeting, one of them, uh, Bob Cabana and uh, a, a Miss Casey Swales, who is the uh, deputy associate administrator uh, for NASA. And she indicated that they have already uh, torn down about 600 buildings uh, that were seemed deficient or not operation or non-operational. They just simply couldn't do anything with. Uh, I'll, I'll have a lot more to say, say about this. We, I really want to go ahead and, and put in a full, full force uh, uh, coverage on this one. Uh, they do have an initiative within NASA called NASA 2040. It is a study of not only the infrastructure of what's going on, but also uh, their technology, what they need to get get to the uh, to be continue to be world class for 2040. The people they're going to need, uh, what kind of expertise they're going to need. Uh, and again, what kind of facilities they're going to need going forward through uh, through the middle of the century? So they are they are really really trying to uh, nip this whole situation in the bud. And uh, I'm going to have more on this uh, on a later show. But it's, I'm I'm organizing my notes now and getting everything that people were talking about because there's some really interesting, intriguing things being said all the way across from the, the C-suites in headquarters right down to the line individuals 
And that is what the committee seems to be focusing on, by the way, when they go ahead and visit these centers. They, they talk to the middle management, yes, and they do talk to the center directors, yes, but they also talk to the line people, the ones that are really trying to get their hands dirty and really, really what they need. So indeed, NASA recognizes there's a problem. Indeed, NASA recognizes they've got some things to fix, but uh, uh, they are working hand in hand, again, with the national academies to make sure that these, these problems are corrected. Yeah, I mean, Eric Weiser also said that uh, you know, without doing those projects, there's more pressure on the maintenance side for unplanned failures that we have to take care of. And he also said that many of those unplanned failures could lead to mission risk and missed milestones, and we don't want that to happen. Right, and so. and that was that was also said too during the uh, uh, the, the session at Goddard, and I believe the yesterday's session. So, the NASA does recognize the risk. They do recognize. They've got problems they need to fix, and they are trying to go ahead and develop a strategy to continue to fix these things and also work within the budget constraints that they are given, because that's also the the other flip side of this coin. What does their budget look like for infrastructure? And that is some of the things that they're working with uh, our hired help up, up on Capitol Hill to address as well. I would just like to point out uh, props to Stephen Clark for the headline, NASA's buildings are even older than its graying workforce. I may or may not have gotten a good laugh out of that. I'm As, as somebody who every time I look in the mirror, I'm turning grayer and grayer. Uh, hmm. Okay. Fine. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective. Yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of a matter of perspective, uh, there's quite a perspective shift potentially going on with the New Horizons mission of... How much can it explore the Kuiper belt and maybe instead switch it to the sun while it's still in the belt? Gene? By the way, sir, a nice segue. I like that one. Uh, yeah, this is a report coming from NASA Watch. Uh, Keith Cowling indicating that uh, uh, the New Horizons team uh, is trying to is strongly suggest and suggesting that our solar system actually has a second Kuiper belt. And what they are proposing is to hang on to New Horizons in order to investigate, possibly investigate this second Kuiper belt. However, uh, and this has been going on for some time, NASA's insisting that, okay, do you have a rendezvous plot for a second KBO, for, for another KBO? or Kuiper Belt object. And right now, there really isn't one on the horizon, no pun intended. So what the game plan is, since New Horizons is out there, NASA figures, well, okay, uh, maybe we can use this spacecraft to do some really cool heliophysics stuff. So, and take some more readings in and around the, uh, at the outskirts of, uh, of the solar system and see what the sun is doing, similar to what Voyager 2 is doing now. And to try to correlate what Voyager 2 is sending us, sending us back is additionally some new, some new stuff. So, um, however, this does not sit well with the folks at New Horizons. Uh, Alan Stern 
who is the lead PI on the project, did a, uh, a change.org petition, uh, basically saying the following, we, the undersigned leaders, view with alarm NASA's announced intention to prematurely end the exploration of the solar system's Kuiper belt by the New, New Horizons spacecraft well before it leaves the Kuiper belt. We also view with alarm NASA's intention to replace New Horizons science team with a brand new team. New Horizons was built and launched and paid for at a cost of almost $1 billion to the taxpayer, specifically to explore Pluto and ancient bodies of the sun's Kuiper belt. After a decade-long journey following, following launch, it reached this distant scientific wonderland in 2015 and will remain there through 2028, prematurely truncating the spacecraft's exploration there when it's still in the Kuiper, bait, Kuiper belt excuse me, is both a fiscal and scientific waste and sets a bad precedent for NASA. The New Horizons team, particularly its science team and science leadership, have done a magnificent job at every stage of this important and impressive project as they continue to do so. Recent discussions at NASA surrounding the replacement of this team in part or in whole are both misguided and unfair and would set a bad precedent for NASA. As the first and only planned spacecraft to explore the Kuiper Belt, New Horizons is a jewel in the nation's and NASA's portfolio of space leadership. We, the undersigned, ask NASA, the administration, and Congress to reverse the course of both of these important matters. And there are some rather impressive names here. Uh, uh, Lewis Friedman, uh, and Andreen, uh, Owen Garriott, I mean, excuse me, Richard Garriott, um, Owen Garriott's son, Laurie Garver, Jim Green, Jerry Griffin. Uh, those names are, are kind of familiar to this audience. Homer Hickam, Wes Huntress, Sir Brian May, uh, Bill Nye, William Reedy, uh, former past associate administrator uh, and former astronaut. Uh George Whitesides and so on. So again, this I think is just the another salvo in this. Uh, stay tuned. This this is going to get really really interesting because this has been an argument that's been going on now within SMD for some time. I know Lori Glaze has brought this up at a few uh, uh, NASA Advisory Council meetings as well. So we'll see what happens. You know, grab the popcorn, fasten the seatbelts. This is going to be a bumpy ride. It'll be very interesting to see. All right, we are going to do a few quick rapid-fire ones here that I want to mention relating to crew missions. Uh, Virgin Galactic completed its third successful uh, crew mission, making that fourth successful spaceflight in four months. This one was not uh, broadcast or televised anywhere uh, and we're told that these were some of the original people that signed up way back in the day. So the uh, new crew members for this one was Ken Baxter, Timothy Nash, and Adrian Reynard uh, from the U.S., South Africa, and the U.K., respectively. So we've got three new astronauts there. Uh, we have one astronaut aboard the International Space Station now who is setting an endurance record. We talked about the year in space way back when, uh, well, now Frank Rubio will be setting the uh, official 
record. He surpassed Mark Vandehei's original record of 355 days in space. And when he lands at the end of the month, he will have a total of 371 days off of the planet. And uh, there's another crew that will also get the chance to experience being off the planet as well. And that is the Axiom 3 crew, which was officially announced, uh, which includes the commander, former NASA astronaut and former Axiom 1 commander, Michael Lopez Alegria, along with Italian Air Force Colonel Walter Viaday uh, as pilot, and then mission specialist Alper Gezavarachi of Turkey and uh, ESA project astronaut Marcus Want of Sweden. Yes, sir. The the neat thing about the uh, uh, the Swedish astronaut there is he is a regular ESA astronaut. ESA is actually paying Axum to get their astronauts some experience. They're not waiting for a incremental launch on. on they're not waiting for a NASA incremental launch. They are going ahead and launching with Axum. They'll pay for the seat. Indeed, it's about two weeks. But uh, what I remember, uh, Josef uh, Aschenbacher, the second, the Secretary General of ESA, basically saying that they're going to try to be doing this more in the future because they really want to get their people experience in space. So Axum is kind of proving what they wanted to do, which is to go ahead and provide other space entities, a uh, seat to uh, the ISS or to space. So hats off to Axum. They're doing a, they're doing a bang up job. They really are. Uh, again, already going for their third flight here. And from what we're hearing, they're currently planning, I believe, early 2024 for that flight. Uh, so that will be coming up early next year. So very soon. Uh, and it's always exciting to see, you know, private space really getting privatized in a way because we already have you know the crew dragon which is their vehicle of choice and now you've got these uh so-called private astronauts mixing with isa astronauts and then of course the crew that's already aboard the iss i always find that really exciting indeed and uh that is in a stark comparison uh when you take a look at nasa's vehicle and that is the space launch system uh, and the latest report from the GAO officially says, quote, at current cost levels, the SLS program is unsustainable. Gene? Yeah, um, this was a GAO report that was released last week. It said the following, quote, senior NASA officials told the GAO at current cost levels, the Space Launch System program is unaffordable. The SLS program developed as a developed a roadmap for outlining short-term and long-term cost-saving strategies for future missions. For example, NASA plans to use contract type types that shift cost risk from the government to the contractors and achieve manufacturing efficiencies. But it's kind of late to determine the effect of such strategies and what impact they're going to have. Uh, NASA is also considering some long-term operations in, or options, including purchasing future SLS launches and payload capabilities from a contractor, okay, who would own and operate and integrate the SLS rocket. So it sounds like they're trying to privatize, they may be trying to privatize the vehicle. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to throw out there, this, and again, the, the idea that this, the vehicle was not sustainable, um, it's not news. 
we, we've, we've covered that right and left here before. Uh, but NASA is trying to get to at least a single launch cadence uh, for SLS once a year or perhaps even twice a year. I'm curious if they're going to get there. I'm also curious, too, is once ISS gets scrubbed and is, you know, at Point Nemo uh, in the ocean, uh, what they're going to do with the $3 billion allocated to keep ISS going. So I'm wondering if that's going to go into uh, the Artemis program. So we'll, we'll, again, we'll just see what happens and uh, uh, fasten the seatbelts. Again, NASA's, NASA is aware of the problem, and it sounds like they're trying some different things to rectify the situation. I know what they could do. They could spend it on infrastructure. Hey, there we go. Full circle. <laughs> We're, again, uh, that's something. I'm, uh, and again, Larry, that's something I really want to get into on, 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 a, on a future show. I mean that. We will. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, that's something that we kind of have basically known since the cancellation of the Constellation program that this was going to be a lot. But one thing that uh, we didn't know is that NASA is now going to have a head of uh, UFOs or UAPs or whatever they're calling them now, right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, so back in June of 22, NASA announced that the agency was commissioning a study team to examine unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAPs. That is observations of events in the sky that can't be identified as aircraft or other known natural phenomena. So from a scientific perspective. And so on September 14th of this year, uh, NASA Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena Independent Study Team published its final report containing a series of recommendations for how the agency could help move our understanding of UAP forward. Uh, lots of interesting stuff in there, right, Gene? Oh, indeed. In fact, if you sat in on the session this morning that they had, this is kind of uh, fresh off the uh, the griddle, if you will, uh, Bill Nelson was saying that they again they commissioned this report last June. They wanted to shift the conversation from sensationalism and uh, basically removing all of the stigma surrounding UAP, and they wanted to move all of that to an honest, hardcore scientific investigation and share that data transparently with everyone. There seems to be a global fascination with UAP, Nelson observed, uh, and they brought together some of the leading scientists and AI specialists on how to apply the full focus of science data to UAP. And it's the first time that NASA has applied hardcore science to the investigation of unidentified aerial phenomenon. And he went on to say that we have to we, we have to have an understanding um, about these things. Quite frankly, we don't know where they where they are, and they do present a safety risk to to the skies above above the country. Now, they did say right out of the box that there is no evidence that any of these things are extraterrestrial in origin. However, Nelson did go on to say that according to scientists at NASA, there are probably at least a trillion of habitable planets out there in our galaxy alone, or at least that's, that's the going theory. Uh, the 
so what what they're trying to do here really is number one remove the stigma but number two get to the bottom of what's going on and they're looking to do it with with hard science but right now they just don't have enough data to go ahead and and try to determine you know then find the needle in the haystack in fact uh, one of the the individuals a gentleman by the name of uh, David uh, Spurgle basically said in order to understand uh, you know, in order to find the, the needle in a haystack, you f- have to first figure out what the strand of hay looks like. And, and that's where they are right now. They don't really understand what they're looking for. So they're trying to go ahead and apply artificial intelligence and other things to the data. But they're also asking you and I and everybody else to go ahead and try to help. So, you know, if you, you've heard the adage since uh, September 11th, 2001, if you see something, say something. Well, the adage here, according to one of the presenters, again, David, David Spiegel, was if you see something, get good data and send it to us. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to basically set, set up an app where individuals can report something that they've seen or or tried to to determine what it is, maybe even getting a picture of it and send it in. And uh, that's one of the other things that they're trying to do with uh, with some some of the information that they're getting here. Yeah, they're going to actually try to come up with, uh, you know, smartphone based apps, right? Yep. Crowdsource this stuff. Yep. Um, Dan Evans, who is another presenter, said uh, UAP, again, may pose a danger to our skies. By understanding UAP, we can ensure our skies remain safe. And uh, they want to recreate an honest roadmap to see how NASA can participate in the study. Uh, the, the, uh, the team report that was issued, and it's downloadable uh, from the NASA website. In fact, if you go to science.nasa.gov, it's there. We'll post a link to it in our show notes. Um, they want to go ahead and, and use this as a, as a testament to NASA's commitment to obtaining knowledge on this particular subject. The sad part about it is, uh, since this study has embarked, a lot of people that were participating in the study were ridiculed and really, really trashed on social media. And that was called out uh, today at the, uh, at the press event. Also, NASA announced a single directorship that will be taking over the study of UAP within NASA. There's actually going to be an office of UAP study within, in, within NASA. Think about that for a moment. Initially, uh, they did not want to go ahead and say who that was for fear uh, that individual would also face ridicule. I mean, we've had, they've had literally people getting death threats over this, which is, which is to me is just absolutely bizarre. And if you're one of them on social media, look at yourself in the mirror and go, huh, what am I doing? Uh, however, Nikki Fox, uh, no more than about an hour ago, as we went to air, basically said the following, given the interest, I am sharing NASA selected that Mark McInerney will be the director of UAP research. As we continue to digest the study team's report and findings, please treat him with respect in this pivotal role and help us better 
scientifically understand UAP. And to give you, this is a press release from NASA that was issued again, just as we were we were going to record. Uh, this gives a full uh, full data about who uh, Mark McInerney is. And it says here that he previously served as NASA's liaison to the Department of Defense, covering limited UAP activities for the agency. In the director role, he will centralize communications, resources, and data analytical capabilities to establish a robust database for the evaluation of, the, of future UAP studies. He will also leverage NASA's expertise in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and space-based observation tools to support and enhance the broader government initiative on UAP. Now, since 1996, he has served in various positions at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration at the National Hurricane Center. So he's not exactly a slouch. So this is probably really a, a good uh, individual to insert in, into that role. Well, what I think what people have to get through their heads is that this is a serious scientific undertaking. I mean, they're they're even talking in their recommendations about leveraging the aviation safety reporting system for commercial yes. pilots to to provide a critical database for the effort. Right. And that's one of the things that they stress. They wanted to remove the stigma from from pilots, essentially, to report what they're seeing and what they're looking at. And make sure they get all of that hard data because all of this, all of these data points are just one more piece in the puzzle that, that they can put in to try to figure out just what these things are. And they're not, notice too, they're, they're kind of staying away from the little green men stuff and they are really trying to get an idea of, of what we're looking at. So uh, hats off to NASA for taking this kind of seriously, but also... Um, the press conference was kind of littered with some other other you know, things. Like, for instance, the, uh, the NASA was asked about the uh, that, that incident in Mexico where that individual presented what looked like a 1,000-year-old, you know, mummified alien. And uh, uh, I believe it was David Spiegel that answered, well, you know, what they could do is just basically let us have tissue samples to look at if they're really serious and give those t tissue samples to, you know, all over the world and have them look at it. Because again, this is what NASA wants to do. They want to keep the effort transparent and really want to keep it open and have the data free and open to anybody that wants it. Basically, the goal is to turn them from UAPs to IAPs. So unidentified to identified. Nice comeback. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to help identify them, obviously, that's an interesting topic and something that will be discussed for quite a long time. Uh, one thing that a lot of people are hoping won't be discussed for quite a long time uh, is the upcoming Starship Second Integrated Flight Test. And in particular, uh, what they're waiting on at this point. Uh, Elon Musk originally tweeting out that uh, the vehicle was basically ready to go, except for uh, waiting for the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA. Uh, then the FAA comes back and says, our investigation is still open before finally Elon Musk going, well, what's still left? It'd be nice if you told us. Yeah, turns out SpaceX is actually the ones that created the list of items 
uh, for this investigation. I'm so glad uh, you mentioned that, Sawyer. That's one thing that I was going to talk about, too, how silly that was that he pulled that social media stunt to, to say, uh, what, so what do we need to do? Well, you know, you're the ones who wrote it, so you should already know what you need to do. And as a matter of fact, you already did it. Right. In fact, uh, the FAA said that the investigation is closed, and that's because SpaceX conducted the investigation into what went wrong and made their own recommendations into what needed to be improved, to which the FAA signed off on it. That does not mean they have a launch license yet, which is still required by the FAA for them to actually fly. But one thing I want to point out before we dive deep into it is that Elon eventually tweeted out the list of the 63 items of which all but six of them, if I recall, are completed. Uh, they vary very wildly. Uh, some of them are very specific, such as better manage engine bay pressure by increasing fire suppression capacity by 15 times, aka the giant steel plate they put underneath that's created a water deluge system, or basically a giant bidet, if we're being brutally honest. Um, <laughs> and uh, add leak capture and drain hardware for valves, things like that. Sure, those make sense. Those are very important. Uh, then you get certain things on the list here that don't really seem that major or that the wording on these is by someone that's not really in an official capacity. Uh, then you get things like increased scrutiny on leak checks. Um, where was the one that I saw earlier that really made me laugh? Um there's one that's just perform component testing. Uh, <laughs> new seal for certain areas. What areas? Don't know. What kind of seal? Don't know. In my personal opinion, a lot of those are on the more vague side. But the only actions, according to this list that was tweeted out by Elon Musk, that still need to be done in terms of booster reliability is to change certain booster valve timing. In terms of Raptor engine reliability improve oxygen valve design, oxygen valve seal design, and design of the hot manifold. For avionics, redesign network architecture. You know, that, that small thing, just redesign the whole architecture. Uh, and for Raptor leak mitigation, improved igniter seal designs. Okay. I'm Gene, gonna... go for it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Boy, I can see the I can see the threats and uh, coming now. But anyway, let me go all the way back to April with the launch of the first Starship. If I remember, and Sawyer, you could correct me because you've been following the story too. When they hit the button to to launch and they did the launch commit, that thing was on fire internally in seven places, if I'm not mistaken as it was ascending because there was a fuel leak internally to the, to the booster. That's one. Yep. And also of note that uh, fuel leak that led to the fires uh, eventually severed one of the flight control lines. So you kind of lost flight control because of that. Right. You, you, that, I, I, thank you for doing that. I was, I was getting there. Um, Sorry. But no worries. I'm glad you, but I'm glad you pointed it out. Uh, the, the other thing too, with that was th when they knew they were going to lose the vehicle. Okay. They, they did hit the big red button, if you will, to go ahead and destroy the vehicle, uh, as it was ascending or as it was tumbling in that instance. And it took about 40 seconds 
between you know giving the command to to detonate and actually receiving the command that Act- is an eternity actually if i can uh, make it even more painful sounding um they triggered the autonomous flight termination system so the onboard computers control the flight termination system that goes boom when things go wrong right it fired it didn't destroy the vehicle Hence why it kept tumbling until aerodynamic forces finally broke it apart. So the flight termination system didn't do jack squat. Apparently, apparently the ex- explosive charges were not large enough, right? Nope, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay. And and yet everybody was touting this as a huge success. So let's fast forward uh, to just a few weeks ago when... Uh, SpaceX decided to go ahead and stack the, the second Starship vehicle just as they bloody well knew the FAA was going to go ahead and say, hey, you know, we still have some I's dotted and T's crossed. But they bloody well knew the FAA was about ready to go ahead and say, hey, you know, our investigation is over. But they stacked the vehicle kind of, to, in my opinion, to kind of push the FAA in, in, into the direction or at least get the the public to try to push the FAA into the direction of actually getting a launch license. The FAA basically said, nah, not so fast, Sparky. The, the investigation is still open. Uh, we still have uh, some things to, things to look at. Oh, and by the way, we expect about a list of 63 items that need to be fixed before we even contemplate giving you a launch license. And again, Sawyer, you mentioned that Elon said, well, what 63 items, which was total garbage, because as you pointed out, sir, SpaceX actually wrote the darn report and knew exactly what was going on. But Elon tried to invoke some drama into all of this and basically say, hey, we don't know what's going on. And to wit, it basically got the uh, you know the, the 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 faithful, if you will, energized and started yelling and screaming. Uh, finally, the FAA did say that uh, you know there are indeed we've closed the investigation. There are sixty three items that need to be addressed, and Elon basically said, "Hey, congratulations to SpaceX for completing fifty seven of these sixty three. These are the same." 57 items that he claimed no more than about a day prior to knowing nothing about. So, you know, I mean, it, it makes absolutely no sense from that, that respect either. I don't know. I mean, does, does this gentleman thrive on drama or what? I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of frustrated with this. Oh yes. One more thing too. I believe the FAA said today that they will go ahead and look at what SpaceX has done, but they will not be in a position to even consider granting a launch license until next month. And here they were, here here was the company yelling and screaming, oh, we're going to launch the end of August. Really? So in other words, we could still be a long way from the second launch of Starship. And by the way, that doesn't even start to 
go ahead and consider what the Fish and Wildlife Service may have to say, because again, that launch damaged the area in and around um, the, the launch site, which is about, again, five football fields away from the wildlife refuge over at, uh, at uh, Boca Chica. So the Fish and Wildlife Service will also have to have some things to say about this and may also have to authorize the launch. You beat me to it. I was just about to mention the environmental assessment is still not complete as well. So that is still pending. And uh, for those who I know are already going to say, but wait a minute, Kennedy Space Center is on a wildlife reserve and they don't have any issues. That's because they've actually worked with all of the environmental agencies and the FAA and local governments to mitigate as much as possible the effect on that wildlife. And in fact, a lot of the wildlife has already adapted to the launches, whereas now the wildlife there is still continuing to adapt and having to basically learn where they can and can't be with all these rockets. Now, as for Elon, if I may a second, (laughs) um, he uh, he's always seemed to have had an issue with the FAA. If you recall, their uh, eighth flight, their eighth um, test vehicle, SN8, they did a test hop with it without approval from the FAA and got a slap on the wrist pretty hard for that one. Uh, Elon has in the past definitely taunted the FAA. And in this case, I think these series of tweets absolutely 100% were a way to get his army, and I mean this in the most uh, non-judgmental way, but those who can sometimes be called fanboys, the people that are very devoted to Elon and what he's doing, uh, it's basically him rallying his troops to say, hey, I'm sure if enough people complain, then we can get things done. And I feel really bad for the people at the FAA's media team, and in particular, their social media team. Yeah, they got clobbered by the, uh, basically the, you know, the muskrats, for lack of a better phrase. And I'm not trying to be derogatory when I say that, because I've seen that term a lot. And Sawyer, you and I concur with with uh, the assessment there. That's basically what Elon was trying to do. And what really makes me laugh, and this is, I'm going to go ahead and turn the tables a little bit here. Today, or, or was it yesterday, Elon Musk actually wanted or was advocating for an FAA-like organization to oversee artificial intelligence. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. So you know, you can't have it both ways. Hmm. Well, I guess that that that's more of a symptom of Elon knows best. Yeah, and and again, Sawyer, you mentioned KSC. I'm going to mention Wallops Island too. They have been launching over. That is the only uh, facility or launch facility that NASA owns outright, and they have been launching sounding rockets there since since time immemorial. And I recall too, and I believe I may have said this on this program before, but I'll I'll, I'll repeat it here. I had asked the folks at Orbital Sciences, and I believe there might have been one of the press conferences, and I did bring this up. I said that you know you have the, the Chincoteague Wildlife Refuge just basically a stone's throw away from where you're launching here. Uh, what kind of mitigations have you have you uh, you studied, and what have you done to go ahead and make sure that nothing happens over there? And I got, and I'm trying to find the recording, and gosh darn it, once I find it, I'm bringing it here. But they basically said that we've really done 
our due diligence with cooperation with the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, the Department of Interior. And we have really, really worked very, very hard hand in hand with them. We will have observers, volunteers from the Fish and Wildlife Service on Chincoteague Island as, um, you know, as Antares launched for the first time to observe what was going on with, with, with the famous Chincoteague ponies and the other wildlife on the island. They had sensors all over the place to measure what, what may have been going on with the wildlife, how they're moving and so on. And they have a hard and fast rule that if the prevailing winds are blowing near, anywhere near the wildlife refuge, it's an immediate scrub because they don't want to have, if they have a bad day, they don't want any of the debris falling into the wildlife refuge. So they're really, really meticulous. So when Orbital started out, they were really meticulous and that continued on forward through, you know, current through, uh, through uh, Northrop Grumman. So I'm saying NASA plays by the, by these rules. Northrop Grumman has been playing by these rules. Why can't SpaceX play by these rules? That's all I'm saying. Yep, which brings us to the the uh, current lack of an industrial wastewater permit for the deluge system, even though they have installed some concrete catchment areas to try to catch at least some of that uh, wastewater. They haven't captured all of it. And even if they had a system that was perfectly designed and perfectly captured all of it, it still wouldn't be quote unquote legal because they don't have their permit for it. They don't have a PE sign off on it and they don't have the agency sign off on it. So, so there's Boca that. Ch yeah. Boca Chica is not the site for that vehicle. Yeah. Period. It was never supposed to be the site for that vehicle. Period. It was supposed to be for Falcon 9. They were going to launch every so often out of there. And that's what basically the, the town agreed to. Then all of a sudden, this happened. And I'm, I'm going to also cite a, uh, an article from uh, the uh, Texas Public Radio that basically said that the, the boom that was supposed to happen in the Brownsville area concerning SpaceX and bringing all these new aerospace companies in and essentially turning Boca Chica into, you know, KSC Mark II uh, never happened. And that, you know, the, everything that the town fathers had promised or they got the promises from SpaceX, none of that occurred and none of it will occur. And now the town fathers have got the egg on their face and they're trying to figure out what to do, do from this point. Yeah. So it's very interesting also to look a little forward and see if, you know, next month or the month after that, uh, SpaceX gets their launch license and then uh, you wonder what's going to happen with the environmental lawsuit. Is that part of the equation in the FAA's eyes or not? Is that something where it's going to take, you know, uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, who are the plaintiffs in the Starship suit, it's going to take them trying to file for an injunction to prevent the launch pending the outcome of the lawsuit or, or, or what? Or will that not even be a factor? It may. Interesting but it, to it, see. Yeah, it may, but it also may be a factor with the Fish and Wildlife Service too. 
Yeah. So, well, again, this is going to be a real bumpy road. And in short, and I'm I'm just going to throw this out there. Sawyer, you're you're you are correct in characterizing this thing as kind of a bidet, if you will. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it, the 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 water suppression system is far from adequate for a Saturn V class launch vehicle. Period. I, you know, I mean, what I didn't, what I don't understand, and I, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about this. What I don't understand is why the devil didn't they just go ahead, take Launch Complex 40, use that, you know, convert that over, basically do the same thing what ULA did to Launch Complex 41, certify it ready for human flight, and basically take 39A, which already has a water deluge system that could handle such a vehicle and use 39a i don't get it and the other thing is again they're looking at expanding as well at the cape too so i wouldn't be surprised if they end up instead of building their own pad like there's been the rumor for they uh launch complex 49 if i don't they take one of the pads that's already there like delta's just about done maybe when that's done you take 37b over at the Space Force Station, which, again, has a lot of these systems in place already, and you just modify for Starship. Yeah, but again, if you take over, like like some some of the other launch pads, uh, if you're going to reactivate one of the older launch pads, you may have a shot at Launch Complex 37, but that also depends on what ULA is going to do with Launch Complex 37. I'm not sure what their intentions are yet. Um, but if you're going to take a brand new launch pad that's been deactivated for a while, you still have to go through all of the, you know, all of the, uh, the, uh, environmental studies and, and so on. And that's going to take, you know, I'll, I'll forgive me, but that's going to take years and cost thousands of lives. So, uh, you have, uh, you're, you're basically have the same situation, uh, then, you know, that you have over at Boca Chica and it, it's, it's even worse. So. My thought is, again, I don't understand why the devil they didn't go ahead and use Pad 39A from the get-go. Yeah, and as of right now, just based off of what I've seen from my trips to the Cape, they've basically done nothing there. There's zero change, zero upgrades to what's currently at 39A for Starship, so... Yeah, and, and that pad that exists there, that tower, you can bet NASA's not going to allow them to use it, not after uh, what occurred over at, uh, at, at Boca Chica. So uh, if they do, they use that at their own peril, and if they damage Launch Complex 39A, in fact, I believe NASA's already told them that if you do intend to launch Starship from 39A using that tower, you better be darn sure that you have Launch Complex 40 ready for human flight because we think you're going to go ahead and cause a lot of damage there. Yeah, and uh, along that note, I think SpaceX is kind of aware of that and the fact that uh, they are currently stacking a crew tower at Pad 40. Uh, I may or may not have laid eyes on a... uh, crew access arm that's in the works that should be out at pad 40 very soon and uh i wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason they're doing that as opposed to you know being able to do like uh cargo and crew launches from there is if god forbid something happens 
uh, with the Starship vehicle at 39A and you damage your main launch pad for crew and cargo to the ISS, that you have a backup to keep NASA happy. Yeah, but uh, again, I'm going to throw out there, you should be using 39A for Starship modify the darn site for that. You shouldn't be using that monstrosity next to it because NASA, first off, is not going to allow you to fly that thing off of there, not after what happened over at Boca Chica and not after what happened to the, the damage and so on. Because if you're going to throw you know, debris about six miles, I mean, there is a lot of industrial buildings in that area. You've got the launch center that's about three, three miles away, the, the press site. There are other administrative buildings in that area. They're not going to allow that, period. What do you think about the uh, the theory that says that they're just trying to milk Boca Chica for all it's worth to do Starship development until they can make it into a relatively safe aircraft, spacecraft, and then move their operations over to KSC? I don't. Well, that's where I put my money personally. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes They're it not makes even going to try to make it, you know, to change its license to, you know, make it capable of more than five launches a year. They're just going to try to develop Starship there until it's a working rocket. Yeah. yeah. Until it stops blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, I, I'm, I, I think I'm in agreement with you guys. But again, I'm going to throw this out there. One more thing, too. One thing that we have not mentioned is how critical this thing is to the Artemis program. And mm-hmm. what the devil does this do if they keep on kind of playing games and, and, and making, you know, doing all the, this stuff and, and trying to, to essentially, you know, what play the games Elon's been playing, what does this do to, um, to Artemis and the schedule and landing on, on the lunar surface. Now they've already given up on the idea of going in 2026. That's pretty much shot. And Jim free has basically said, we will do flights and we will do missions with the hardware we have. So I'm not sure Artemis three, although right now it's slated technically to be the, uh, the lunar landing attempt. I don't think it's going to, going to be the lunar landing attempt. Uh, uh, but but the idea is what what does that what will this do uh to artemis and its schedule and getting to the moon at least by the end of the decade i mean here's the important things to remember with starship at least that i've been learning a lot more about recently mm-hmm. uh so in terms of the way to get to the moon uh, human landing system project. They have one physical piece of hardware at Starbase in Boca Chica that is actually labeled for HLS, and it's just a nose cone. Second, in terms of actually getting to the moon, keep in mind that this vehicle will need to be refueled in orbit prior to landing. There is still testing that needs to be done, and no work from what is physically visible, at least yet, on the system that is needed to do that in-orbit refueling, something they will have to test before landing as well. So there's major steps ahead of A, building the darn thing, B, building the tanker system, C, testing said tanker system, D, testing the tanker system with your actual landing vehicle, and then any other testing you might need to do before you stick the lives of people on it on a descent to the lunar surface. 
I'm going to put an asterisk on on what she just said real real fast. Uh, Jim Free today at uh, the meeting with the National Academies was asked about you know the progress of Artemis and so on and the progress of the uh, the human landing system, and uh, was also asked about cryotransfer and where they were with that because the committee was seemed to be very very concerned about the progress of that and the study of said transfer systems. And Jim Free, who was uh, speaking at the time, indicated that indeed uh, SpaceX has got a pretty good plan uh, for cryotransfer, but they haven't, you know, he, he, that he needs to see that demonstrated. Uh, ditto, he said, with Blue Origin, they also have a very good plan for cryotransfer, but they, both of those entities, he said, have to go ahead and demonstrate this before we go ahead and, and you know, commit to a, to a lunar landing because cryotransfer is going to be critical in, in both spacecraft. So yes, indeed. Sawyer, you're absolutely right. That is a big deal. And the cryotransfer that they're talking about on, on, on SpaceX and Starship, that's, that's going to be quite a, uh, quite a, a slog to, to prove and do. But uh, according to Jim Free, they've got a pretty good plan going forward to to try to test that, the idea is now trying to implement that, and that's a whole different ballgame. Right. Oh, definitely. I'm sure the progress. I'm sure they're very happy with the plan. It's just now we need to physically see hardware. Yeah, indeed, and that's where I think the committee is saying. So, where is it? And uh, so, in, indeed, there's a lot of concern out there uh, about how this this whole commercial implementation is working. And, uh, uh, you know, that's sending up alert flags through the National Academies, at least. And so just stand by. We'll see how this is. But because I, so far, the commercial plans have proven their success. They've proved that in commercial cargo. They've proved that into commercial crew. They've proved that indeed on the commercial crew side, if one falters, the other one can take over. And it was the same thing on the commercial cargo side. One faltered, the other took over, but at one point both faltered. <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, it, again, it, the, the whole idea of having many providers has proven its worth. The question is, have we bitten off more than we can chew? And I think that might be a story for another day. <laughs> And I think that's a good place to bring this episode to its conclusion. Uh, there's a lot that will happen with that topic, and I'm sure it is a discussion that we'll be having for quite a while. Indeed. No doubt. And, and I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Sorry, we missed you, buddy. Glad to see you back in the chair. And Kat, whenever you can come over here, here we miss you. Hopefully you're doing well. Indeed. Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Hey, I am still here. See you next time. Uh, yeah, I think it's probably safest for your job to not discuss the FAA concept. Mr. Works for the FAA. Your tax dollars at work. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and uh, Larry Aaron, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, thank you, Sawyer. Happy to be here. And uh, good talk tonight. Good talk. Indeed. Thank you all for joining us as well. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.